Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. This is Elaine miller Karras, and I will be your host today. The title of today's show is Stopping Gun Violence, Reimagining a Restorative Justice System. And my guest today is Edwin Weaver, the Executive Director of Fighting Back Santa Maria Valley. During a two-year period in Santa Maria, California, a city of only 103,000 people, there were 23 murders within 17 months. This epidemic had many contributing factors, including gun violence, and one factor that came out of community meetings was that there needed to be accessible mental health services for the community. Now, Fighting Back Santa Maria Valley, I'm going to be referring to it as Fighting Back from here on out, was asked during this time to develop a violence reduction program for the schools. They were tasked with conducting conflict resolution using a restorative approach. Now, Edward Weaver will discuss how students who have conflict go through the restorative mediation with the Fighting Back program specialist. This approach has reduced school suspension and reduced recidivism to zero, which is amazing. And I want you to talk more about that, Edwin, when we get to, to, uh, to talking and discussing. And the students who go through this process um, do not get into fights with each other, and they can they can focus on school and learning, but what the staff realized quickly is that you cannot participate in restorative processes if you don't have a felt sense of safety. And Edwin, I really want you to, you know, to tell us more about what that means, but I know that as a result of that, you became a community resiliency model teacher, and you're now even senior faculty with the Trauma Resource Institute. So, um, what I would, I would uh, love for you to share with us is... Um, what happened and how did you, you know, muster the, the, the community together? But I also want to tell you all a little bit more about Edwin Weaver because he does have a rich background and he's such a community agent, I will say, ambassador. He serves as the co-chair of the Governor's Children's Justice Act Task Force for the state of California. His community engagement includes, I mean, oh my goodness, there's so many, a leadership of the Santa Maria School Attendance Review Board, a member of the Santa Barbara Human Trafficking Task Force, the Mayor's Task Force on Youth Safety, and the Santa Barbara County Continuum of Care to address homelessness. Fighting Back was selected by the State Assembly man Jordan Cunningham as the nonprofit of the year for the 35th District um, in 2017. And Edwin was also selected by the Santa Barbara Foundation as an emerging leader for Northern Santa Barbara County in 2019. Now, he's earned a a number of master's degrees already. He has a master's in social work from UCLA, a master of theology, and is currently in a master's of dispute resolution program at Pepperdine's Caruso School of Law. So, Edwin, it is such an honor to have you. You've done so much in the world. You're such an advocate. So, as we start today, what is on your mind? You know, it's it's so funny. Thank you for having me. It's it's. I just love talking to you. So, <laughs> we're going to have this great conversation, and hopefully, it helps people. 
Um, I'm actually thinking about a young person. Um, he texted me last night. Um, <clears throat> he is a definition of resiliency when I think of the term. And he, uh, two years ago, he was homeless, sleeping on couches. Um, and he is graduating in two weeks um, from high school. And he will receive a Cal grant. And he will go to college and he's going to study psychology. And of course, it's no wonder that he's going to be studying psychology since so many people in the helping field have helped him. But we have been a part of his journey for the last five years. And we have just seen him grown into this incredible man who is going to have a great trajectory because of so many different things, including learning some wellness skills to keep his nervous system in balance. And so I just, he texted me a few minutes ago and said, hey, can we talk today? Uh, last week, I got him a bicycle because he turned 18 and he needed a play, uh, something to get him to and from work. And so we had a little bit of money laying around and we went and got him a, a bicycle and he's super excited about that. And he's excited to start his new job. So Edwin, I love that you said when we had we had a little money, you know, hanging around because <laughs> I know that you are uh, the executive director of this nonprofit. And in order to keep the nonprofit going, people have to give donations to you and you have to write for grants. So I want people to know that they can go to your website and learn more about the great work that you're doing, because I know that you have a personal touch. And that young man, he, I'm sure, texted you because you have made a difference in his life. And I'm hoping as people listen to all the work that you've done, that they can possibly see how there may be other derivations of Edwin Weaver that could be um, all over this United States of America of ours and could be helping youth in a way that um, I know that you have. And I, and I, I know that you're especially dedicated to homeless youth and that is such a huge problem in America that many people don't know about. But you said something that I think might be helpful for us to know about what your definition of resiliency is, because you said he's the very epitome of resiliency, this young man. So could you give us a little bit about your ideas about what that means? Yeah, I, I'm a storyteller. So when I think of resiliency, I have a, a vivid picture. There was a young woman, she had just gotten out of, um, she was locked up. Uh, as a minor in, in a juvenile hall facility, and she had just gotten placed into a group home. And we went to a foster youth conference in Sacramento. And so she kept walking past this rock wall gym, indoor climbing gym. And she said, hey, Edwin, I want to go do that. And I'm thinking, no, because I'm the executive director, and I am not going to be liable for taking six young people rock climbing. <laughs> but guess what she did? She talked me into it. Of course she did. And then we get there, and she'd never done this before. She got the equipment, she looked at this wall, and she tried two or three steps and fell down, two or three climbs up, up, fell down, two or three times. And then she looked around, and I watched the whole thing. And she looked over, and she saw somebody who was really great at rock climbing. And she went over and said, hey, you, I need you to help me, and grabbed him by his wrist, drug him over. By the time she was finished, she had climbed this 10-foot wall. The whole gym was cheering her on, and I thought, that's it. That's resilience, the ability to thrive when faced with the everyday stressors of life, uh, the ability to overcome, not just overcome but or cope, but to thrive in the midst of this adversity. Yeah. And she was, uh, she had been, had a very difficult life, uh, but somewhere she learned these skills of, of advocacy, of, of asking for help, of humility to know, I don't know how to do this, but I want to learn. 
and enough self-worth to say, yeah, I, I can climb this wall. I know I can. I just need some skills and some tools to help me get there. And so that, I, when I think of resiliency, I think of her every time um, climbing that wall. And that's what we're about. Well, and Edwin, as you say that, I, I can't help but think about you and the work that you've done in the world. So I guess that goes to my next question. What made you first get into the helping professions? I mean, here you are a social worker, you've got a degree in theology, you've been a minister, and here you are as an executive director of a nonprofit making huge, huge, huge changes in children's lives. Yeah, you know, I was in college. I went to George Washington University in Washington, D.C. It's right in the middle of the city. And I went there to be a teacher. I wanted to be uh, Mr. Beard, who was my 10th grade biology teacher and wrestling coach. And I wanted to be just like him. So I went off to college and I was going to be a a teacher. And GW was really smart. They made you start teaching right away to see if you would like it. And so I got asked to teach a unit of genetics at the School Without Walls, the high school. And I was teaching Mendelian Square. (laughs) which you still remember. And all of a sudden there was a young man who was missing. And I go, well, where, where is he today? How come he's not here? And they said, oh, he got arrested. And I said, he got arrested. That doesn't make any sense. This was a good student, a nice young man. So I come to find out he had borrowed a gun from a friend of his because he was afraid that the, between the buses and the subway and the walk to school that he was going to get jumped. And so he had borrowed a gun a Metro police officer saw it and arrested him. So when I went and talked to his, his grandmother later and found out that story, I thought, you know, Mendelian squares are interesting, (laughs) but the real question is what, what can we do? And first it's a problem that this young man feels like I, I can't walk to school safely. But more importantly, what can we do as, as human beings to help somebody like him so that that never happens again? So I switched degrees to psychology, and I started working at one of the first homeless shelters in the city of uh, Washington, D.C., called the Community of Hope. Um, and I met a social worker there, Deanna Durham, who's a professor at, uh, in Harrisonburg, and she became my role model. I wanted to be like her when I grew up. <laughs> Oh my, I've never heard that story, Edwin. That is so inspiring. Did you ever find out what happened to the young the young man? No, I really didn't. You know, I was eight, 18, 19 You were just a old. young kid yourself. I was barely, yeah. Yeah, when I first, <laughs> I can remember the day I went to this housing project to volunteer for this group, and I went to the Boys and Girls Club, and I, you know, I was completely out of my cultural norm element, everything, but I knew I felt like home at the same time, and I've always loved working with people who are uh, underrepresented and underserved. It just seems well, to be something you, that I love you, to do. And when you talk about this young man, uh, how inspiring it is that he inspired you and you're helping so many children. Yeah. When we take, think about you know, one's, one person's life and how it changes the trajectory of our own lives, that we have no idea that this is going to happen to us. Yeah. So, thank you for sharing that story. So, you know, I know that part of this, too, is when you um, – you came to California, you worked for Child Protective uh, Services. And why did you decide to go from Child Protective Services to a nonprofit organization? What was that uh, pathway for you? And Yeah, I think two, two things happened. You know, I'd been, I'd been the supervisor of the Assessments Investigations Unit at Child Welfare Services, which is our CPS. And so, that's the, that's the group of people who, when you call and report child abuse, they're the people who go out and try to figure out what's happening. And we were doing 1,500 investigations a year. 
and uh, between the seven social workers. And uh, one of the social workers called me one day and said, hey, can you come out? I want you to see what's going on. And I encouraged them to do that because I got stuck behind my desk too often. And, and when I walked up on the scene, there were three boys who were, uh, one had a broken arm and, and the other two were um, in, in a bad way. The dad was handcuffed and he was sitting on the porch and the mom was handcuffed and she was sitting on the curb. And the house was just abhorrent. And I remember uh, talking to them and hearing their story. And so dad told me, you know, when I turned uh, 10 years old, my dad offered me my first beer and we would drink and work on cars. And I just loved doing that. And then now I'm an alcoholic. And mom said, you know, when I, when I became a woman biologically, my mom from, for that occasion gave me my first methamphetamines. Um, we smoked together as, as women. And I remember thinking in my heart that, that, this is this is too late, you know. Child welfare has a very child CPS has a very important job to keep children safe, but it's reaction reacting to the problem after the problem has occurred. And I'm much more interested in trying to figure out how to find that 10 year old boy, and how to find that 13 year old girl, and tell them that they are fearfully and un, and wonderfully made, that they they have the ability to be resilient in face of diversity, and to support the parents. Uh, in that moment, too, to say, you know, you don't have to repeat the trauma and the things that happened to you. you. You can create a different life for your child. And so that's why I made the switch so that Fighting Back is a prevention uh, organization. We are very much in the prevention business um, and we allow and support law enforcement and child protective services and others to, to react to the trauma that are occurring to keep our kids safe. Well, I'm wondering, as you were working in Santa Maria and knowing that in um, northern Santa Barbara County, um, we talk about this a lot, there's there's a southern Santa Barbara County and there's northern Santa Barbara County. And our listeners may know that many of the very uh, famous and um, important people on the planet live in uh, southern Santa Barbara County, like Oprah, like Prince Harry. And Your favorite, Barbara Streisand. And Barbara said. Streisand. Does she live there too? Oh, my gosh. Anyway, yes, I do <laughs> like Barbara Streisand a lot. Um, and not to say that they all do very important things in the world to bring light to the oppressions that have happened in the world. But I just always think it's such an interesting dichotomy that here you are just, what, 40 miles away, and there is this um, – uh, you had so much. You've had so much suffering in in that part of the world, and so I know that there was a, this period of time a few years back where there were um, so many murders in 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 your part of the world, and that's I think what inspired uh, people to come to you and say we need to do something differently. Could you illuminate what was happening in 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 the county at that time, and how so it, it, how did it, you it, respond? Yeah, no, great. So it really wasn't the county, it was the city of Santa Maria. So Santa Barbara County um, has the second highest poverty rate in the state of California. We have the, we have a school district here with 17,000 students that has the third highest homeless student population in the state of California. Um, And we face these challenges uh, daily. I live here in the city with my wife and three kids and uh we are trying to thrive. Well, during this window, all of a sudden we had these rash of murders. And so where uh, normally the FBI's, you know, rate of homicides for a city of a hundred thousands, about three or four kind of vacillates between the two numbers. We had this huge spike. And so 
many people got together talking about what can we do. And what kept coming up is we need more mental health services. And I realized they didn't mean for our uh, pervasive and prevalent mental health conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder that can be treated through psych, psych, uh, for, through medication and, and intensive therapy. But they're talking about depression, anxiety, and many of the things that people are self-medicating with uh, for those symptoms, and sp- specifically young people. And so um, I can remember one situation we had gotten called out to a fight at a junior high school and there were 40 young people fighting on the playground and junior high people are big. <laughs> they come in all sizes. They come, you know, 80 pounds soaking wet and they come 220 and um, everything in between. And we were asked to do a restorative approach. And for those of you who don't know restorative approach, it's a way of resolving conflict that is built on the basis of many indigenous communities Um, And we're very thankful for the work that they do. So instead of a colonial uh, approach, which is punitive, you know, you, you, you did something against the state and therefore need to be punished. It really looks at the relationships that are involved in how to restore those. And so we asked three questions, you know, what, what harm was done? What have I done to, uh, to, to contribute to the harm and what do I need to do to make it right? But what's, Interesting, and what I found out to be true is you have to have empathy and you have to have your nervous system online in order to participate in that process. Um, So I had just been to a trauma-informed training and learned about ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences, and the 10 questions that people ask to do that. And I was doing a pre-interview of a 12-year-old girl who had been in the fight, and I realized as she was talking that her score was seven. She had an ACEs score of seven. So now, looking back, it was no surprise when we got together in the circle, she was not able to participate. In fact, we ended up almost coming to blows in that circle because she became, her nervous system became activated. Uh, We call it getting bumped out of your zone on the high end. She had a flight response at first, but there was no place to go. So she became very combative, a fight response. And she could have froze, right? Those are the three big ways we respond. I didn't know what was going. I had no clue what was happening. I was so confused. And then (laughs) about three months later, I met a wonderful person from Trauma Resource Institute called Jennifer Burton and started to explain to me what I was witnessing. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, (laughs) this explains why this normal uh, process of resolving conflict that says you know, generations of historical evidence that it works wasn't working in the situation because she was unable to feel safe. And she, because she didn't have a felt sense of safety in that moment, she couldn't have empathy and say, what did I contribute and what do I need to do to make it right? Instead, she's, she needed to, to defend herself or she well, needed and, to get out of can it. Can I right? just add, you know, I think the important thing, this is so important what you're saying, because I think this is where we have so many punitive approaches without understanding the neuroscience, the biology of what happens to us. You know, seven adverse childhood experiences means that she had a very difficult childhood. So, you know, including in those, those 10 adverse child experiences, when we, we first started looking at this, are things like, um, does the parent have a, a mental health condition? Does, is there an alcohol problem? Has there been child abuse? Um, 
neglect, physical abuse, sexual abuse. I mean, all these, the, these. She had her, her dad was in prison, right? That's another one. If a, if a, if a parent is in prison. So here you, this child had seven out of 10. Yeah. And so then we have an expectation that this is not going to impact this child. And that there's a, a physiological response that happens that can send us into that flight, fight, freeze response. Yeah. And that if we don't look at it through this lens, then we're not going to be able to craft interventions that are going to be the most um, potent to help change the trajectory of that child's life. And so when we talk, you know, and you know that I'm uh, that I helped to develop the community resiliency model is that what is it about this nervous system regulation that you're talking about that became important to you when you started helping these children think about restorative justice? Well, I think the first thing was a shift in my own perspective and trying to teach that to the principals and the teachers and the security guards and everybody, all the other adults, because um, it explains so much. You know, it, before I, I was trained in this model, I would have said, she's, she's a bad kid. And I would have said, what's wrong with you? You know, why are you being so bad? Why are you being so disobedient? And we need to punish you. Then I started learning more about trauma and I'm asking the question, what happened to you? You know, what, what horrible things have happened to you to make you like this? And, and, and so I have empathy, which is important for her. And to try to have a little bit of perspective of maybe what are the contributing factors and but what you and Tri taught me at Trauma Resource Institute is ask that third most important question, which is what is right with you, what is working, what what are your strengths, what are what are the things that that help you overcome, and have helped you in the past that we can tap into, and then you can use when you're faced with these challenges like a rock wall or somebody looking at you bad or you walking in realizing somebody had taken something out of your bag, right, and so. Uh, those steps are hugely important. And, and at Fighting Back Santa Maria Valley, we've had the opportunity this year that we trained all of our uh, uh, probation staff that worked with youth who are, in, in, you know, um, that are locked up in the hall or at camp. We taught them these skills. And, and you should see their, their response. It's really amazing because first, um, it helps them as probation officers to be in, in their best self at all times when dealing with these adverse challenging young people, right? So they need to be in their, in their best self at all times as much as they can. So they, they use the, cells, the skills for self-care, but then they can look at the young people and go, oh, okay, this is what's happening and respond with a help now skill or another skill that is an emergency skill to help them regulate and then follow that up with a conversation hey, this is your nervous system. This is what I noticed was happening. Do you want to learn more? And many young people that I have met and worked with, they are desperate to get some control of their nervous system. They really feel unsafe when they're out of their resilient zone. And they, they, would, they welcome the conversation because they want to know what's happening in their body. And they want to know, they want to have control and agency over their body to make choices so that when faced with difficulties, they have a choice what yeah. to pay attention to and what to really notice. And then what to, as you say, water uh, so the flowers will grow, right? Yeah, you do and hear so, me say that. And I, I just think that so many times as a society, we look at behaviors and we say, oh, you know, they're this, this, and this, instead of really going, um, you know, what, what has happened to them? And 
what what can what is right with them and what can we build on you know recently i was talking to a, a person who works with youth in in um, north carolina and he was telling me that he really wants to change the semantics from rather at risk youth to at opportunity uh, youth and i love that 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 shift because i think if we looked at what is the opportunity to help that child identify what strengths that that child has and also to try to see if there are, you know, things that are missing. And I think that's what I've heard you do with Fighting Back Santa Maria, including what you started with in terms of getting a bike for that that kid, because that was missing for him to be able to get around and, and how that might make a difference for him. You know, uh, I, Opportunity Youth has been adopted by the state of California. It's the, uh, it's the standard. I love it. So love our it. governor has made that a rule. Uh, that, you know, we have to let people know what we mean um, because we're transitioning from when we're changing language. But, yes, you know, yeah. the, the, young, the young woman who climbed that wall has, is uh, an opportunity youth. She has a lot of skills that we all need. We need her to have those skills, and we need her to contribute to society in a positive way. And she's on our way to do that. Well, so, um, Edwin, I am just so um, inspired by your work. And we're going to take a short break. And when we come back... Um, I know that you will share with our listeners some more details about how would a person who's listening, who's also worried about their community, what would they need to do? What's the lumber that they need to create what you've done in Santa Maria? Because you have done something and you continue to do it. So we will be back in a few moments and we will hear more from Edwin Weaver as he illuminates us in how we can help the youth of our community and Give us some really concrete examples of, you know, for example, um, I know you're on the governor's task force. So did that inspire you? Did you not only um, be able to contribute, but you learn from others? So I know that, you know, as they say, it takes a village. So we will be back in just a couple of minutes and we will continue our, our discussion with one of my favorite people, Edwin Weaver. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma informed and resiliency focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute, 
or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at TraumaResourceInstitute.com. That's TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Welcome back. I'm here with Edward Weaver from Fighting Back Santa Maria. Um, Valley, and he has been talking to us about the work he's been doing with youth and the wider community. So, Edwin, I I wanted to maybe come back to what we were talking about, the biology, and how the learning about the biology of the nervous system has changed the children. I was thinking about when you were talking about that that young woman, that she was really operating from her, what we call the survival brain, the lower parts of the brain. And the lower parts of the brain don't respond really well to language. And we've learned that they, it responds a little bit better to sensation in terms of, like you said, those emergency um, interventions that you may do when someone is knocked out of their zone. So can you tell us a little bit more about that, how that's, that's worked with the, with the work that you're doing with the children? Yeah, I think, I think it's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm a bit of a skeptic with everything. And so I can remember... Um, the first training that I went to, there was a trainer there from the Trauma Resource Institute. Her name is Jennifer Burton. And all of a sudden, she, it was before we started, we we're at the hotel getting trained. And she picked up the phone and I could tell it was a difficult conversation she was having. And then she got up and started pushing on the wall. And I thought, what is wrong with this woman? She's a crazy person. Um, that was my own, you know authentic reaction. Um, but then when I learned the skills, right, and I, and started using them, so for me, the, the, there's two skills in particular, which the basis of all uh, community resilience model is, is tracking, which is basically paying attention or noticing your what's going on on the inside or the sensations that your body are taking. I started tra- tracking and then I started resourcing, which is something that gives me hope, joy, peace, place, or a sense of calm. And it can be real or imagined. When I started doing those two skills together, I noticed a felt sense in my own journey. And, and what's funny, um, you wouldn't know this from me from my 20s or 30s, but people now describe me as a calm person, as a person who doesn't get rattled very much. <laughs> and and it really is the skills. I mean, my wife has noticed. She says, I'm a better dad and I'm a better husband. I do a better job of listening to her. I don't respond reactionary. I still have a lot of emotion. Don't get me wrong. I'm a very passionate person. I still get angry. I still get sad. I still get mad. I just don't seem to lose it uh, as often with the skills. And so, you know, for me, the first step was for me to buy into the model. And, and I have. I use it every day. I, use it, I used it this morning. Um, I used it yesterday when I was having a difficult time with some things, some challenges. Um, so that's the first step is practicing the skills because I think there's authentic, authenticity to that. Um, 
And so really learning the skills in such a way that we practice them ourselves, I think, is the first step that I had when it comes to understanding and working with the young people. Well, and I, I think, Edward, too, as you say that, because, you know, we've known each other for quite a while now. Yeah. Um, one of the things I appreciate about you um, is you are very passionate, but you also have a humbleness that you also um, can demonstrate to others. And that is that your own lived experience yeah. at times where you have, let's say, lost it or gone into that high zone and that your wife even says now that, oh my goodness, you're calmer now and people notice something differently. Because I think that when we share sometimes our lived experience, a kid will say, you mean you did that too, Edwin? And you can say, oh boy, did I, right? Yeah. So I'm just wondering, you know, are there, is there something about your lived experience? I'm talking about you, Edwin, personally, that you have experienced that helped shape what you do, besides the story that you told us about the the young boy that wasn't in the classroom when you were teaching? Um, yeah, you know, it, it, two, two things. So when I was growing up, um, my parents were depression babies, right? My dad, you're going you're gonna to laugh, those of you who are listening, because you're going to say, really? My dad was born in 1917. He was 48 when I was born, so you can do the math. And my mom was born in 1930. And her uh, her father died in a rock quarry, leaving the family destitute, and her mom had to raise her on a cafeteria worker's uh, benefits. And then my dad uh, had a mentally ill mom, I think. Um, and so they weren't around much. They Their love language was provision. They provided very well for me and my siblings. They, they, they worked really, really hard at their uh, business. They made sure that we wanted for nothing, but they weren't around. So I was, I was a lonely kid. Um, and in high school, that's a hard place to be. And I can remember some, some men started spending time with me because of their faith. They, they were followers of Jesus and wanted to spend time with me. And that changed my trajectory quite a bit. Um, they became mentors to me so that when I was at Washington DC at GW, a guy named Scott Dimmick started picking me up on Fridays um, to spend time with me and mentor me. And he took the first place he took me to was the community of hope was, was this shelter that I ended up working in when I was, had graduated. So I think that that sense of how much that impacted my life, that mentorship um, really formed who I thought, what I thought was important in life. And it's interesting because um, when I first took over Fighting Back, our, our mission statement says to partner with all members of the community to achieve resiliency, right, uh, and, and reduce instances of uh, resiliency against substance abuse, reduce instances of violence, and promote a safe and healthy community. So I had to look up that word resiliency because I hadn't even heard of it before. And I, I landed on the Harvard uh, Institute for the Child, I think it is, website, and I clicked on a video. And the video I clicked on, I still have it. I've, I've downloaded it. And it says that the number one thing that we have found in the resilient child, that is the child that despite all the circumstances makes it, despite all the, the, the barriers to life, they make it, right, is that they have one person who, in one adult who is a positive role model or has unconditional positive regard. I say loves them, Right. And so I latched onto that when I thought about who are we going to be as fighting back so that everything that we do is about relationships. 
It's about relationships with other agencies. It's about relationships with other leaders. It's relationships with a kid who can feel very comfortable texting me at 10 o'clock at night and ask me a question. Because what matters is the relationship that that, that young man knows I care about him. I'm on his side uh, and I want to help him. So that's kind of the foundation, right? And then you go, well, then what, what do you want these mentors, these people who love them to share with them? And, and that's these skills, right? It's, it's like uh, both I practice them, right? So here, 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 young man who I'm helping, you can watch me. I'm, I'm resourcing and grounding and I talk about it when I'm with them. And you can do that too. You know, oh, you're, you're really frustrated with your teacher. Well, let's, let's think about that first. Let's get in the resilient zone. And then, uh, and then let's have a conversation of strategies, right? Because we want you using your thinking brain when you're strategizing around it. But I think that that's probably the most formative uh, thing that happened to me as a kid. And it's funny because I got to go fishing. My friend Mick Jurek was one of those two adult men. The other one was Kevin Hale. And then my brother Coulter, the three of them, they'd take me fishing and do all kinds of stuff with me. And I got to go fishing with Mick about two weeks ago <laughs> in Florida now that I'm vaccinated and things are a little bit more open. I spent four days with him and it was like I'd never left because, you know, I know he loves me and he, and he is on my side um, and he wants what's best for me and my family at all times. I called him when I was having difficulty with my teen kid uh, about five or six years ago. And he gave me some really wise advice, you know. So I think I would say that was one of the big things that well, happened to me. Yeah, and I, and I oh, thank you so much for sharing that story of your mentors because I think there's even more research coming out right now. How do we reduce the impact of adverse child experiences? And relationship is one of them. If a, ch- if a child feels that someone is listening to them, yeah. and certainly those um, those mentors. And I've certainly heard that all over the world where someone will say to me, well, you know, what really helped me get through was a grandmother or a mentor like you're stating. Um, Sometimes people outside of the family. So those of you that are listening, you know, are you thinking about maybe that one kid that you've been worried about? Or maybe your, your child has told you about somebody that they're concerned about. You know, how could you possibly be that individual or connect that child to individuals that can be there for that child that could change the trajectory of their life. Um, I, yeah. I always go ahead. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm thinking of, you know, it's interesting how we've been spreading the, this model all over the County. And one of the first groups I met with were the security at the high school, you know? And so you may not know the, the security staff at the high school aren't police officers. They're, they're basically just adults <laughs> who wear, in our, in our high schools, black uniforms and hats that say security on them. And when there's a fight or something, they go and try to break it up. And so I remember one of them, a guy named John, he's at one of our alternative high schools. Everybody knows John and everybody knows they can go talk to John. John is a mentor to hundreds of kids every day. And he loves the community resilience model. <laughs> he he. Uh, so it, he probably won't listen to this. This is a little bit outside of his box, listen to a radio show or a podcast, but he said, uh, when we we're doing resourcing, he couldn't think of anything, you know, and, and then we really worked on it. And so he realized that uh, fishing uh, on his cabin lake was his resource. And so every time he sees me, you can't see me audience, but he holds his hand up and, and does a little reel like he's fishing. Every time I see him, John just goes, Hey, Edwin, 
And then he, he does this and, and I'm like, okay. And then I, I hold my hands up and to make the resilient zone. And, and he goes, yep. He gives me a thumb up that he's in his zone because he's fishing. So, you know, well, that's I love a stressful. That integration, in, yeah. integration of daily activities. And obviously you've made an impact for him to be reminded about how he loves to fish and yeah. that he's within his, his zone of well-being. I think that's a, that's a wonderful story. You know, and he's, he's a couple years from retirement. He's a guy you would think you would never be able to teach this wellness skills or mindfulness or whatever language you want to use around. And he was so open to it because it's such, it's a biological model. Everybody has a bi- has, has a nervous system and he knows that and, and it works and he, he tried it and it worked. And, uh, and now he teaches it to the kids on campus and when he approaches young people who are agitated or outside of their zone before you know, the fists start flying, which is the whole point, he can redirect using the help now skills or another skill because he's talked to them about it and the whole campus understands the model. And so they use it every day. And so it's, it really is reducing violence on campus. And, it, and then our hope is um, that that translates to the streets as well. Well, and I think that you've done something that is really important and that's a systemic approach to, yeah. to well-being. And, you know, here we started talking about what you were tasked to do was to bring in um, restorative practices, but it also was about mental health. Right. And so, and what you're telling me about is as a security guard, he's not a trained therapist like you and I are. He is a security guard that has an important job on the campus. And I call those the natural leaders of communities that can also be change agents and to help not only um, cultivate their own well-being, but those in others. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about how you've specifically done that within um, within the, um, the county? Yeah, the sure. I, you know, it's, it's a long slog. I think you have a slide in your training where it talks about tipping points. And so I don't think we're there yet. We're very, very close. Um, but some of... So first off, no, those of you who are listening and are thinking about community work is that it does take time. And, and there's, a lot of, um, there's a lot of plateaus and a lot of setbacks, but just keep at it. It, it, will, it will happen. Um, so the first thing that we did is, is I would start teaching and, and training um, at any opportunity that I have. Um, and so I taught in classrooms. I've taught in um, uh, professional development situations for teachers um, and really start getting out there and, and honing my craft of presenting and training. And so that means I can do it in 30 sec, 30 minutes <laughs> and I can do it in a, a two day or a whole week. Um, you, you know, having, when somebody says, yes, we want to learn this and they are uh, an ag company uh, talking to their managers, they don't, they're not going to set aside four hours for you. So you got to give them something good right away that they can get a felt sense. An ag company is that an agricultural company. Yeah. We grow okay. a lot of strawberries in Santa Maria. All Sorry. right. I just wanted to, be, I, I kind of had a hunch that was, that's what it was. Yeah. But I we to make sure. do a lot of agriculture. We grow strawberries for the whole world. Um, and so when you're talking to a business, it's just going to be different. So adjust and be flexible and, and take advantage of every opportunity that you have and then find your champions. I knew, I knew we were winning when I went to, <laughs> I went to my son's high school and um, met with his academic counselor. And I saw the help now skills on his cubicle and the resilient zone on the other side of his cubicle. And I had trained him, but you never know what people do with that training. 
the fact that it's in my son's school uh, academic counselor's cubicle, I knew, okay. And I said, do you use this? He goes, I use it every day. He goes, I don't even have to tell you. He said, listen to this story. So, and this is when you really, this is when you know you're doing community work, when you can replicate and get exponential growth. And this is what happened. So this young girl who was in a group home because she was in foster care that had been identified and she got taught the community resilience model because of she had a lot of anxiety, especially she would run from the school. She would literally get up from her class and just take off and nobody would know where she was for half a day or so. So she started to use the model and really you could, her attendance and her, everything started working. But then she came and told um, this counselor the story that she had a friend who had math uh, test anxiety. She had test anxiety and she taught her the skills of grounding. So they both turned on the iChill app and they listened to Elaine walk them through the grounding process right before their test. And they both got A's on their quiz. And I thought, oh my goodness. So we went from Edwin teaching a school counselor, the school counselor taught the student, and then the student taught the other student. None of them had to wait in line. None of them had to to sit on an access line, which is how we get our mental health in our county for four hours. Nobody had to get Medi-Cal approved uh, eligibility or go through the screening process and wait in a waiting room. A person helped another person with their mental health. And, 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 and that's what we need in this country more than anything is that uh, you called it the democratization of mental health. And that's what's happening with the community resiliency model is that it's accessible to all of us and, um, and we can see it. And so um, the other day I was listening to a, a therapist talk and she was talking about the community resiliency model and I've never met her before. And I thought that's exactly what we need. I need to keep, I need to have happen is I shouldn't be the one talking to them about it. It's, it's that third step, right? And it just grows. And so it's a beautiful thing when you help somebody and it's, it's, it's a humbling thing when you see that take off like a wildfire. And, and, you know, Elaine, all credit to you and, and your work. Um, you know, you, you weren't too sure about me probably when you first met me, but uh, you hung in there with me and gave me well, a you chance. Kept on, you kept on leaving the training and going, I know, busy I'm a guy. I'm a little bit to, busy. We're going to have to tie him to the chair, which yeah. I would never do, of course. And, and, and so, unfortunately, <laughs> I do have a lot of obligations. But, yeah, um, you guys hung in there with me, and you've provided me a lot of wonderful opportunities with your trainings outside of my community. Um, but it is fascinating to think of this model that you – um, that you found on the shoulders of others and encapsulated into a workable model that we could all understand and then watching it grow. And so, yeah, there, there are kids teaching kids all over my county. They might not even know the language, but they know the skills, right? Well, and I, and I, and I think that's what's really important. I know that one of the ideas that I have that is in my brain that I have to get down on paper and implement is a a community resiliency model youth ambassador program so that we do something more definitive for kids that want to be sharing this with others. You know, there's yeah. many peer-to-peer counseling programs in high schools, and I don't think it would be too hard to integrate um, some modules on the wellness skills and help children understand the biology. As you know, I always think about we have different portals, right? We have the portal of thinking, our cognitions, and how we think about things, and we have the portal of how we feel, but Oftentimes that portal of sensations has been left out of the equation. And when we're talking about, you know, reaching the survival brain and so many of 
uh, the children that we we care about and want to have them hopefully see that there could be an, another future available to them, that if we don't through, look at their lives through this lens, we're not going to be as effective as of helping them change. And I think that's what you've done. You've done really well in, in Santa Maria. So I, I want to ask you kind of, I hadn't planned on this question, but it just came to me. Has there been, a, you know, you know, besides what the story that you just told, I know that you've, you've spoken to um, people about the model you know, in many different fields. Is there a field that um, you're going, I'm really surprised that I was able to bring it here. I mean, besides the security guard and that people actually started to listen. You've told me so many stories over the years. Yeah, no, I, I two things come to mind and, and um, you asked me a question earlier I want to get to, which is uh, this recidivism rate down to zero. So I don't want to leave that because I think our listeners are interested in in reducing violence on campus. But yeah, I was really surprised when probation came calling. Now, we have done a lot of work around foster youth um, and their educational outcomes and had a lot of success. We have a graduation rate of about 95 right now, which is um, nationwide, it's about 42%. So we're very happy about that work. Um, but probation-involved youth, um, there, there's a lot of similarities with our uh, foster youth. And so they asked us to come. And I don't know if you know too many probation officers that work in institutions, but you know, it, it was a, it was a bit of a challenge, but they love it. They're just stoic about it, <laughs> but then they start talking and then you realize that they're really listening. Um, and I have a couple of them that are personal friends and they're using it at home with their own children. And, and that's when, you know, they really have bought in. And so that was the first group that I was surprised by. Um, and then we had a corporation that came to us and asked us for help. They were outside of our community, but they they had, uh, you know, in the pandemic, they were having a lot of HR type difficulties. They were having a lot of anxiety and they didn't know what to do with it. And so they asked us to come and teach the skills. And we did over two different sessions and um, they did feel better. Um, and so they were able to be more productive in the workplace. That was new for me, um, but I enjoyed it a lot. Um, and so those were two things. And finally, it was clergy. And, and of course, it makes a lot of sense because they are the front line of many mental health services for many communities. But they are very open to this model because it's not religious in nature. Um, and some, unfortunately, some, uh, some church practices and theology are resistant to psych- psychology or Western psychology, I should call it. Uh, but they're very open to this model because it is such biologically based. And, you know, our, our men who are a little bit resistant to psychotherapy as well um, are are more open to this model. If you get a bunch of guys together, the first thing they're going to do is start talking about their aches and pains and, and where everything hurts. And that's a natural portal to talking about these skills because they're tracking, right? <laughs> if they're talking about their knee, uh, they're tracking. So well, you know, and you've really ideas. been talking about the accessibility of the model that I, that yeah. of course we've seen as well. And that doesn't mean that it's always easy to bring some new ideas to people as well. You know, um, what I'm hoping that maybe you can illuminate to us, um, we're almost, I can't believe how fast this hour has gone. We're, we're almost done with our time together. Are there any parting thoughts that you would like to leave our listeners with that you think, you know, if, if you do anything, think about this, um, you have such a, a rich experience of working with youth, um, Edwin. Yeah, no, I think if I could leave anything with uh, this, if, if you're serious about reducing violence 
I think it, we have to take a couple steps back because this this issue of guns in the community has really polarized us, and we're, we're not getting very far when it comes to legislation. And I hope that changes. But until that does, we should talk about the people involved, and the people all have a nervous system. And it's very rare that somebody is in the resilient zone when these tragedies occur. And so if we could start going upstream as to the causal factors that what takes um, when these community violence uh, situations occur and start looking at the human beings and saying, how can we help them before um, and what systems can we put in place that can help them before? And that's what we're trying to do so that every, every fight that occurs on campus, there is an intervention Community resilience model is part of that intervention as well as the restorative approach so that people have skills to regulate themselves when they do get angry or they get offended or they feel like they're being bullied. Um, And then they can address it when they're in their best self. So I think understanding that it is a people problem and that um, we need to help people be their best selves is is part of the solution. And so that includes a model um, like the community resilience model, which is very effective. And so one of the things that I, that I kind of want to underscore is that sometimes people say, well, you know, maybe these are just wellness skills for a person. But what you've been illustrating is that the work that you've been doing with restorative justice and with the community resiliency model, it, yes, it does impact an individual, but then that individual impacts a family and a community. Yeah. And it, it's expanding. Just even the, the story that you told about the young girl that taught, taught her friend some skills to take her math, her math test. Yeah. And I, I think that's really important that everyone realize that. Real quick, we had a little guy. He was seven years old. He learned the skills and he took them home. And then he came back and told everybody about how it changed his family and his, his daily practice. Seven years old, Elaine. My goodness. And he was having such a hard time when, when yeah. we met him. Um, and so it, you're right. It helps an older person like myself. It helps little kids. It helps everybody in between. And what's great about this work is it, it does, it's, it's good news. And with any kind of good news, the first thing people want to do is share it with somebody else. And so that is community work, right? <laughs> that is so we take, we take this good news that you have a nervous system. You can pay attention to the things that, that uplift you and, and, and focus in on those. And when we do that, we can be in our resilient zone and we can address these, these uh, adversities and these uh, things, challenges of everyday life. And there's hope for us all. So, Edwin, I would just like everyone to know in case they would want to get a hold of you, because maybe they want to replicate what you've done in San Maria and their community. How do people get a hold of you? Can you let us know about your website? Sure. They can reach us at fightingbackfbsmv.com. That's FBSMV, which is fightingbacksanamariavalley.com. Uh, and we are on Facebook and Instagram, Snapchat. TikTok, the whole thing, Twitter, everybody, everywhere. Edwin, thank you so much for coming today. You always inspire me. And as we're getting ready to leave today, um, I want to remind all of our listeners, remember what else is true in your life. Remember what else maybe you can do to uh, contribute to your community, to a child, to, um, to the things that are important to you. And I look forward to having you come and join us uh, next week, where we will have two lovely young women who've started a new nonprofit called Breaking Code Silence. And they'll talk about institutional child abuse 
and how to unwrap that um, that institution that sometimes can be problematic. So until we meet again, what else is true in your life? Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karras, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller-Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.